This episode of the Dirtbag Diaries is brought to you by Patagonia, makers of high-quality clothing and gear for outdoor sports, world travel, and daily lives that are in harmony with nature. Visit them on the web at patagonia.com. Okay, so here's the situation. I'm standing just beneath the 10,000-foot summit, the North Sister, in Central Oregon. I've just successfully summited, but I'm definitely not happy. I'm standing on the left side of an ice gully, the width of a school hallway. I need to get to the other side. And typically, that wouldn't be a big deal. You'd be wearing crampons, you'd have an ice axe in your hands, and you would take a few careful steps across the ice, look over your shoulder, and think, wow, I wouldn't want to fall there. But there's a problem. My crampons and ice axe are on the other side of the gully, right where I left them strapped to my backpack when I climbed the final hundred feet of rock to the summit. They're no more than 10 or 15 feet away. In the last 10 minutes, I've managed to stack bad ideas on top of half-assed logic held together by laziness and haste. I've just hosed myself in the biggest way. I've got my left foot wedged in the small crevice between the snow and the rock wall. I'm holding onto the wall with my left hand, leaning out, way out, and hacking steps in the snow with the tip of a sharp triangular rock. I'm going to have to make three very, very delicate moves across the gully before I can grab the other wall. The strangest thought bubbles up through the fear. I think to myself, this is kind of like locking your keys in the car in the middle of nowhere. You can see the keys on the front seat, but you can't get to them. It's like that, only worse. Like you've locked yourself out of the car, the keys are sitting uselessly on the front seat, and something big and scary is chasing you. Those are the thoughts that are going through my head as I commit to the traverse. In each hand, I've got a sharp rock in the hopes that I might be able to stop a fall. I breathe deep, lift my foot, and instantaneously feel the other skate from beneath me. The rocks scrape like nails across a chalkboard. I can feel them burrow into the flesh of my palms. For a moment, it feels like I might stop the fall that I'm stronger than gravity, and then the rocks fly from my hands and I'm sliding. The walls blur, my fingers claw at the ice and rock, and then I'm airborne. In the time it takes a synapse to fire, I take it all in. The long tongue of ice, the cliff, the yawning crevasses on the glacier 2,000 feet below, the evergreen hills of western Oregon, and somewhere beyond that, my home in the flatlands, my wife typing away at a keyboard at the kitchen table. I realize that I'm about to answer the question we've all asked ourselves. What is it like to die? At one point or another, we've all cited percentages or experience levels and shrugged away risk, given reasons for why it can't happen to us, why it won't happen. And some of us have even been foolish enough to answer with hollow bravado, you gotta go somehow, right? But a near-death experience, what do you take away from it? Is there meaning in it? And if not, what does it say about these pursuits, about our relationships with these mountains, these rivers, these oceans? I'm not totally sure, but if you're a writer, you talk about it. You fight away the waves of embarrassment, put pen to paper, and write until the answers are there in clean, crisp paragraphs. You dissect and analyze until you have resolution, until you have the anatomy of an accident.
Where, where are you calling from? Are you calling from heaven? <laughs> because, because if you if you slid down through 400 feet at about 40 miles an hour, which you which you said you, it seemed like it, uh, you're you're just riding on on hard snow and everything, and it's just amazing that you that you stopped. This is Robert Spike. He's the climbing world's equivalent of a crime scene investigator. He talks with search and rescue teams, interviews climbers lying in hospital beds. Calling him feels a little like turning yourself into the cops for a crime you got away with. The 80-year-old retired insurance fraud investigator writes about a dozen articles a year for the popular annual roundup, Accidents in North American Mountaineering. He also runs a website called traditionalmountaineering.org dedicated to safety and wilderness travel. Each accident is broken down into bulleted categories, falls on snow, falls on rock, inexperience, climbing alone, etc., and followed with accident specifics and analysis. If you're talking to Spike, it probably means you screwed up bad, but you are lucky enough to live. He's quick to admit that hindsight is 2020. You, you, you try to be kind of nice and, and not, not be too critical because one can always uh, hindsight something, you know, second guess something and all that. Still, analysis is vital. The more information out there, the better. I ask him to be straight with me. If you weren't going to be nice about it, you know, and you're going to be very, very blunt and raw, you know, how would you, how would you break it down? Oh, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be, be very blunt. Uh, I, I, well, it's just a personal choice, but I don't like to climb alone. It's the shared companionship of the climb. It's not the route or the summit that I remember. Um, and uh, secondly, uh, never uh, never leave my pack. Uh, uh, never leave my day pack. You you should have turned around before you did. Uh, before you got into a really bad spot there. So I I think that's about it. Spike's assessment is on point. I made two bad decisions that, when combined together, equal a pretty stupid mistake. First, at the base of the summit pinnacle, I left my summit pack behind. Despite hiking all this gear, ice axe, crampons, for miles, up thousands of feet, I left it for the last hundred feet. Makes sense? Not really, but I convinced myself at the time that it was rational. Second, 30 feet up I climbed through a section of frighteningly loose rock. I should have immediately gone back for the bag and investigated another way up or bailed, but I didn't. I just kept climbing, and I figured I would address a descent option later. As soon as I climbed up through there, I knew that I didn't want to down climb it. I would have to find another way down, which is how I ended up on the wrong side of the gully. Again, I realized that this was a bad decision and made it anyway. When you slipped and, and slid down, you should have died. <laughs> it's, just, it's just amazing you didn't die uh, because I think seven or eight people have died in that situation uh, just in the past 10, 15 years almost. Just I've just gone off a 10-foot cliff. Somehow in the air, I twist. Instinctually, I focus on my landing and try to stick it. But when I hit, the snow was still hard. I haven't broken anything yet, but I'm gathering speed down the widening chute. I spread my arms behind me, grinding my elbows, digging my fingertips into the hard snow. I don't feel pain, but I can feel the fingernails peeling back. I keep looking down ahead. I'm coming up on a bend in the chute. If I can't make a turn, I will smack the bordering wall. I try to reach out for an exposed bit of rock. I grab it, and for a millisecond, I think I'm done falling until a rock breaks loose and begins sliding next to me. To expect 
How does someone with years of experience do something so boneheaded? The technical explanation is simple. It's neat and clean, but totally incomplete. I'd love to chalk this one up to being in the wrong place at the wrong time, but that's a convenient out. Strip away all the technical analysis, and there are deeper, more unsettling, more embarrassing factors in my fall. One, haste. There is a purveying opinion in our community that fast is better, and in many cases, speed does equal safety. The goal was ambitious. I wanted to climb and ski north and middle sister in a day, two 10,000 foot peaks deep in the Oregon wilderness, car to car, in a push. In mid-May, I hiked four miles in the dawn hours before I even put the skis on. It was warming quickly. The North Sister requires technical climbing above bad terrain. I wanted to summit before the snow softened and became prone to small wet avalanches. But there is a right speed and a wrong speed. It cannot be measured in miles per hour or elevation gain. It probably differs for everyone, but for me, it can be distilled down to a sense. When I start moving too fast, I stop noticing the details, the hissing rasp of climbing skins over frozen snow, the tiny wayward insects and spiders blown by the wind onto glaciers. It's often these small details that slow us down, that make us pause and digest the path in front of us. That morning, I wasn't seeing any of it. I was focused on objective hazards, getting back to the car, on the time, on work, everything my mind shouldn't have been focusing on, I was thinking about. I was pushing forward in blind haste. I was concerned more with the goal rather than the process. Two, I was alone. The topic of climbing solo always stokes campfire debates. I'm not going to weigh in with a sweeping pronouncement, mostly because I believe that it's a decision that each of us will make. Each of us will consider the rewards and the costs and reach our own conclusions. I can say this, climbing alone is a manic pursuit. It isn't about finding the middle ground. My darkest moments have come when I found myself unable to turn to a partner for a quick laugh or smile, unable to share the strain or fear. But for each of those crippling moments, there have been two instances when the borders of my mind expanded, where I felt myself dissolve and become part of the vast, startling world of wind, snow, and rock. Sometimes it's easier to muster concern, easier to be afraid when another life is involved. Alone, it can be hard to sense the invisible strand that tethers us to our lives back in the flatlands. The consequences of decisions are harder to see. In truth, if I had been with a friend, there's no way I would have let them drop the pack. I couldn't have bear to watch my wife or my best friend make those mistakes. This morning, I desperately needed a partner. Pride. It's the worst sin of all. For me, it's the hardest mistake to admit. My missteps could be described as comfort level mistakes. I had grown so at home amongst these cold, high, and uncaring places that I no longer possessed the instinctual fear that keeps most climbers safe. But that's a cop-out, a polite way of saying that I lacked humility, and that needs to be said. Subconsciously, I had come to believe that years of experience had insulated me, that my skills somehow made me immune to the hazards that others are subject to. I had forgotten the most basic law, 
Gravity applies across the board. By nature, mountains are cold, uncaring places. They cannot tell the difference between a young boy's first tentative upward steps and the confident strides of someone who has spent their life in alpine glow and wind. Ultimately, we all come to worship at the same temple. All in all, I fell around 250 feet and over a small cliff, over small rock bands. The entire episode couldn't have lasted longer than 20 seconds, but I couldn't really tell you for sure. And I'm not really sure how I stopped myself either. I remember reaching out and grabbing the edge of the gully. My shoulder strained, and then I was still. Loose rocks slid past me, chattered over a cliff top 20 feet beneath me. I heard them whistle like bottle rockets as they accelerated into the air and landed on the glacier a thousand feet below. I pulled myself to a small flat ledge and began shaking uncontrollably, first my hands and then my knees. It took me a few moments to notice the blood trickling like snow melt down my jacket sleeve. Frantically, I ripped open the jacket. Nothing. Ran my hand across my right hip, which I had smacked hard along the way, until I realized that it was my hands that were bleeding. They looked as if they'd been run over by studded tires. I sat in the warm morning light. The sun wrapped its way around the mountain. With my pack still high above me, I had to wait for the snow to soften in order to make the long, terrifying climb back to the pack. I sat there for some time. I like to say that I cherished the warmth on my face, that the sun never felt so good, or that I took the time to take in all the details, to revel in the green lichen clinging to the volcanic stone, or the tiny snow-white spider that crawled across my pant leg, or even that I thought of my wife's soft brown hands fluttering across the keyboard at the kitchen table and broke down and sobbed until I could no longer cry. But I didn't, I just sat there. The person I shared my first awkward moments in the mountains with lived through a similar moment. Deep in the Montana mountains, beneath a full moon, he thought he was about to lose his life. In that sickening moment of acceleration, he cried out for God. The moment took on the deepest meaning. The accident laid bare all the inconsistencies in his life, and he never returned to the mountains. And I've known others that have come within the thinnest breath of dying and met the moment with a shrug. They march forward as if it was just the smallest instance in their journey across peaks, down rapids, and through life. If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, they say. It's been only days since my accident. Friends have warned me to sit on it, to wait for this experience to congeal into something worth writing about. My body is awash with the soft hum of a painkiller, and it hurts to type, but for the time being the pain in my hands is dull and distant, like the soft echo of the real thing. I place my bandaged hands across the keyboard deliberately, let them sit there as if at any moment they will pop to life, possessed like a teenager's hands on a Ouija board. The words will spill out, mysteriously appear on the computer screen. Meaning will be spelled out in bold, clear letters. I will know what to think and feel. I sit and stare, waiting and waiting for the hardening experience to soften into emotion. As always, thanks to the good people of Patagonia and their support of independent voices. If you haven't yet, check out their blog at www.thecleanestline.com. Additional support provided by Basecamp Capital, thoughtful guided investment in the outdoors. 
For more information, visit www.basecampcapital.com. Music this week from Birdie Nom Nom and Elliot Smith. Additional music by Patagonia's own Suze Perez. For more music, visit her at myspace.com, Suze Perez. If you've got a story, idea, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email the Dirtbag Diaries at earthlink.net. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries.